Okay, we're in lesson nine, and we're going to look at the. We're going to finish up First Peter in chapter five, and we're going to uh, look at the whole issue of the responsibilities that we have and the new birth. First of all, we're going to look at specifically responsibilities of leaders. We're going to look at the responsibility of the church. And then we're going to look at the responsibility we have to stand firm. So let's look at verse 1 through 4. He's talking to leaders here. Specifically, he's talking to pastors. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not by dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. First of all, first of all who's writing this? Peter's going to identify himself again. Peter writes as a fellow leader who has witnessed the suffering and glory of Jesus Christ. So he's going to identify himself as, guys, as about what I'm about to share is coming from somebody who is a fellow leader. In fact, I'm not just any fellow leader. I am someone who has been a witness of the sufferings, and I have been a partaker of the glory. Now let me just stop for a moment and explain to you what that means, the partaker of the glory. When he says he's a partaker of the glory, he's probably referring to two things in his mind. Number one, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he took uh, Peter and John and uh, James, and, and they went up on the mountain, and Jesus was shown with all of the glory of who he is. He was transfigured at that moment of, of who he is eternally, and, and so he, partake, he partook of that glory of the of really of the glorified Jesus Christ. And then he also partook of the glory of Jesus as the resurrected one. You understand? Because he saw Jesus as he was resurrected. Now, let me just stop for a minute. This is a point that I think needs to be made for every one of us here. We have to get out of our mind... Well, let me just stop for a moment. When we, ha- when we teach Sunday school, we show pictures of Jesus as he was. And that's good. All right, I'm not saying that's bad. But what I want you to see is, is that you can, you can think of Jesus now in his glorified state. Does everybody understand? He's glorified now. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father. You can think of him in terms of the pictures that we see. You remember the, the picture of Jesus walking with the sheep around his shoulder? How many of you have seen that picture? We don't know that Jesus ever had a sheep around his shoulder. But a lot of us, that's a sacred picture. Another one is, how many of you have seen the picture of Jesus knocking at the door? There's no door handle there. Jesus knocking at the door. That's another, another picture that we have. We have a lot of pictures in our mind of who Jesus looked like then. And we even have pictures of Jesus in our mind as far as him on the cross. We have a whole denomination that focuses on Jesus on the cross. The fact of the matter is, he ain't on the cross anymore. He's glorified. He's King of kings, Lord of lords. Every knee will bow. And that's the picture of Jesus you've got to have in your mind. You understand what I'm saying? You've got to have a, in your mind a glorified Jesus. In fact, the picture you've got to have in your mind is the picture that you see in Revelation chapter 1, that when John the Revelator, who... Let me remind you about John. What does it say in his epistle? The disciple whom Jesus loved? Somebody who really had an intimate relationship with Christ? 
And when he sees Jesus in his glorified state in chapter 1 of Revelation, what does he do? Hey! Does he run up and give him a big hug and say, it's been a long time? What does he do? He falls down like he was dead. Here's somebody who had an intimate relationship with the living Christ. And when he sees the resurrected Jesus, the glorified Jesus, he falls down as he's dead because of who he is. See, that's the picture of Christ we've got to have. So here's Peter. He's saying to us, I'm a fellow leader, but I'm not just any leader. I'm a leader who has witnessed the sufferings of Jesus, but I have also witnessed the glory of Jesus. You understand? The glory of who he is. So he's keeping that in perspective here. Now, here's what he's doing. He's got a couple of exhortations for leaders, specifically pastors. Here's what he's saying. First of all, he instructs leaders to guide and care for the church. So when he talks about shepherding, he's talking about tending, about caring for the flock. Now look at verse 2. He really describes it in a couple of ways. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. So they're to shepherd and guide. So care for. That's the role of a, of a shepherd. He also says to serve willingly. A leader must serve willingly and not by compulsion. Look at what he says. Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. What's the issue there? You want to have leaders who are not, quote, forced into it. So when you, even when you, let me just stop for a moment. Let's talk about spiritual leaders in a church in general. And I've over the years heard this kind of thing. Well, I'll do it if nobody else wants to do it. That's really not a good attitude. Because you shouldn't be forced into calling. Does everybody understand me? It's a sense of that, that God has given you a calling to shepherd and to guide your church. And to, and to have someone say, Oh, well, you know, I'll do it if nobody else is going to do it. Then you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it at all. Period. Because it's not, we're not talking about the leadership of the moose. You understand what I'm saying? We're not talking about the leadership of the Rotary Club in town. We're talking about the Bride of Christ. And there's a whole lot more involved, especially with the shepherding of it, the care and the guidance of the church. And so it shouldn't be by compulsion. Nobody should be, quote, forced into it or feel like they had no other recourse but to do it. So it's a leader who must serve willingly. Here's the other one. A leader must not serve for his personal monetary gain. Look, look at what it says there, verse 2. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. He, his reason, his motivation for serving is not for personal gain. And, you know, and it's not necessarily, it says dishonest gain there. I, I chose the term monetary because that's a big issue today with a lot of folks that are doing it for the money. But the, really, the reality is, it could be any kind of gain. It could be ambition. It could be status. It could be influence. It could be ego. All of those are the wrong reasons to serve so that you... See, it's not... Let me just stop for a moment. We've, we've said this throughout this entire epistle. It's not about who? Us, me. It's about others. It's about Jesus. So when you're talking about serving... You need to serve eagerly because you're serving others, not yourself. And sometimes that line, I remember, I think I shared this with you before, there's a line between ambition and obedience. And it's a pretty fine line. And you've got to be so careful, especially for a pastor and for a leader, 
that you don't cross over from obedience to Christ and doing what he tells you to do to ambition and doing what you want to do for you and for what you want. There's a fine line there. And that's true for any of us who serve in any capacity in the church because it's real easy, it's real easy for the position to get to your head. And because here's the thing, people appreciate you. You know what I'm saying? In a church, usually there's only about 20% of the people do the work, 80% sit. And when you do something, you're going to get what? Hey, Bruce, you're doing a great job as a trustee. Attaboy. And attaboys feel good, don't they? And you may start out wanting to serve Christ, but the problem is, listen to me, the problem is you can quickly cross that line from obedience to him to doing it for yourself. That's true of all of us. And here's the thing. And you may not even know it. What do you mean you may not even know it? Because what does the Bible say? The Bible says in Proverbs that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand it? You can twist a good thing in your heart for your own personal good. You understand what I'm saying? So you want to have leaders. A leader must serve not for his personal monetary gain or his own personal gain. Here's the other point. Again, this gets back to the whole issue of selflessness. A leader must not serve in order to dominate the church. Throughout the Bible, there is a type of leadership that is expressed, and it's one that we have a hard time grasping, but it's called servant leadership. It was expressed in its best form when Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took off his clothes, girded his loins up, and took a bowl and washed the disciples' feet. That was radical to them that, that, that their master, the one that they were following, would wash their feet, the servants. Because in their mind, leaders don't do that. We still have that concept today, and even in, especially in America, we lift up our leaders. And we place them on platforms. And, and, and we can get to the point where we, we believe that we're to serve them, and the problem is, is that goes to the head of leaders where you think it's about you and what you want and what it needs to be. But a leader isn't to serve in order to dominate the church with his personal viewpoints and stuff. A pastor isn't to serve the church. church, You guys aren't here for me. Bottom line, it's not. That's a death trap to fall into that kind of a trap when you start thinking it's about you. Period. You know that for your own personal lives. When you start getting into a selfish mode, it just leads to destruction. Does everybody understand me? And so a leader must not serve in order to dominate the church. In fact, you know what, there's, a, there's an interesting, there's a whole book devoted to this subject. You say, a whole book? Yes, Third John. In Third John, the Apostle John is writing to that church, and there's a guy there in that church by the name of Diotrephes. And he was ruling the roost, so much so that he was rejecting anyone, listen to this, the apostle was sending to that church. So the apostle said, I'm going to have to come myself and take care of it. I'm going to have to come myself and take care of it. Now, that would be a scary thing, wouldn't it? To have the apostle come and take care of it? You say, what do you mean, why would that be scary? All you got to do is just go through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, two people drop dead at the word of an apostle. Another chapter... Somebody gets struck blind at the word of an apostle when dealing with unruly people. And so that whole book 
expresses the issue of the, what's wrong with having dominating leadership. And so Peter, Peter's with that, and he says you know, a leader must serve not to dominate the church. That's not his purpose. He's not here to serve to dominate. So then why do we serve? A leader must serve in such a way that their life is an example to others. You need to serve in such a way that your life is an example to others, period. You know, that holds true to all of us here. Not just leaders. But we need to live our lives in such a way that our lives serve as examples to others. So there we go. We've got the responsibilities of leaders. Now, there's a reward. A leader will be rewarded by Christ himself when he returns. Look with me, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, he, you will receive the crown of glory which does not fade away. This is, you know, rather than personal gain now, it needs to be for later. That's what's more important than now. Do you understand? It needs to be for later. Let's go on. Let's look at the issues of the responsibilities for the church. That's who's the church? You and I. Look at verse 5 through 7. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Okay, let's look at what he's saying here. First of all, Submission issue to leadership. The church in general is to submit to the leadership of the church. Now, Peter uses the term young people and elders because in that day, in the early church, the leadership of the churches tended to be older, mature Christians. They tended to be older, mature Christians. Now, let me just stop for a moment so that you understand the average age back then, they may only have been 40. You understand? They don't live as long as they do now. I think... Now I read recently, I've shared this with you before, the new middle age is 60. So you guys just hit middle age, those of you who are in your 60s. You've still got a long way to go. Yeah, all right, yeah, you've got a long way to go. So that makes me feel good because I was told I'm middle aged. Now I'm still young. All right. Lori just cut my hair yesterday and she told me I'm not young on top of my head. So... The church in general is to submit to the leadership of the church. So you're talking about, first of all, you've got to select leaders who are mature. Spiritually mature. Not mature as far as age, but spiritual maturity. Who evidence a walk with God in every area of their life. And then you submit to those leaders. You let those leaders guide you. Now, here's the other thing. So the submission issue is to leadership, but he doesn't just stop there. He goes one step further, and this is the hard one. First of all, the first one's hard. First one's hard. Because even though, like in our country, we place, we, we put leaders up on a pedestal, we don't necessarily submit to them. And so this, so it's hard, to, the whole concept of submitting to a leader, that's hard. Now the next one's even harder. The church as a whole is to submit to each other. What do you mean? In fact, this isn't a new concept, is it? Ephesians chapter 5, I think verse 21. The Apostle Paul says that we are to what? Submit to one another. Submit to one another. Now, we like the next verse, guys, because it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. We forget the verse before where it says, Everybody submit to everybody else. So, the issue is then, as a responsibility, we need to submit to each other. 
We need to give deference to each other. So really what we're talking about here, and he's going to get into it now. I'll just stop as we get ready to see what he says. Again, it's an expression that I'm not here for who? For me. That is so anti-cultural. That is so anti-cultural. Listen, church ain't about self. Let me give you another statistic. This one is haunting me. This one haunts me. There are 300,000 churches in the United States right now. Do you know that? How many of you knew there were 300,000 churches? Do you know what the prediction is that's going to happen in the next 10 years? A third of them, 100,000, are going to close their doors. A 100,000 are going to close their doors. We're not doing what we need to do to reach people. Because we're focused on who? Ourselves. What we want. And listen, when we talk about, listen to what the Apostle is telling us, the church as a whole, we're to submit to each other. Not, it's not about me. It's not about me. It isn't. It's about others. It's about Jesus. We've got to get that grasp in our, in our mind. We've got to get that grasp in our mind. In fact, you know what? There's a parallel. You know that one church I told you about? When I thought about that church, my mind immediately went to Revelation chapter 2. That prominent church at Ephesus. And he said to them, unless you repent, unless you... See, they had forgotten something. What did they forget, folks? Their first love for who? Christ and others. It was about them. He said, unless you repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. You will cease to be a church. You will have... You know what? And there's a lot of churches, I've met, been in them, that have ceased to be a church. They're just a meeting house for people. Because they've forgotten their first love for Christ. Now you say, what has that got to do with reaching the lost? Listen, when you have a love for Christ, you realize you don't deserve to be saved, and you have a message to share with others, and you will. Period. And so Peter says the responsibility that we have as church people, as a church is it ain't about me. It's about others. And so I'm going to submit to each other. So let's go on here. So here's the problem. And so, man, he follows it up great because really the issue of me, me, me is, what's the big issue in me? Anybody? Not just self, but it's manifested in a chief sin. What's the chief sin? Pride. So he goes on in verse 5, and he talks about the issue of humility. So he says, believers are to live in such a way that their lives are marked by humility. Look, if I'm a humble person, if I'm truly humble, not fake humility, but true humility, it's not going to be about me and what I want. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not going to be about me and what I want. It's going to be about Jesus and what he wants and about others. Humility is the opposite of pride because when you talk about somebody who's focused on what they want, right at the heart of it is pride. Pride. Because that person is saying, I know better. I know better about what should take place. So the believers are to live in such a way that they're marked by humility. Now here's God's attitude. You want to know what God thinks about the person who says it's about me versus the one who says it isn't about me? 
God is opposed to the proud and lifts up the humble. God is opposed to the proud and lifts up the humble. That's the reality. In fact, let me read you what Peter says, because it's a whole lot better than my statement. Here it is. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Look at that. In fact, look at your Bibles for a moment. I want you to look at, let's take that apart for a moment. What does the word resist mean, anybody? To be against, okay. What else does it mean? If Tom is resistant to me and I go to Tom and I say, Tom, I'd like you to do this, what's Tom going to do if he's resistant to me? He's going to turn away. He's not going to, he's not going to listen to me. So let me just stop for a moment. You take somebody who's self-centered, who's self-focused, it's about them, and they go to God and they say, God, I need you to do this. What's God going to do with them? He isn't going to do it. You say, that doesn't sound biblical. Wait a minute now. Psalm 66. You regard iniquity in your heart, I will what? Not hear your prayers. God resists the proud. But then notice something. The next part of it is, is if I choose humility, it's not about me, but about others. If I choose humility, what does it say there in the next part there? He resists the proud, but he does what? To the humble. He gives grace. Let me just stop for a moment. What does grace mean? I mean, I know the theological definition. Theological definition is unmerited favor. What does that mean? What, what, give me a practical definition of grace. That's it. Right there, Bruce. You said it. Getting what you don't deserve. See, if you're humble and you put others first, He's going to resist you if it's all about you. But if it's not about you, He's going to give you grace. He's going to give you what you don't deserve. Isn't that an awesome thought? That's exactly right, Bruce. It's going to change the way you pray. It's going to change your whole outlook. It's going to change the way you serve. Think about it. If you're a leader, it's not going to, you're, if you're in it for yourself, it's going to change the way you lead people and guide people. It's going to change the way you live your house. It's going to change your marriages. It's going to change every aspect of your life if, if humility is there. Because when humility is there, it's not about who anymore. About myself. It's about others. It's about others. And He gives grace. Let me just stop for a moment. So this is a good question to ask yourself then. If maybe you're struggling in your prayer life, and maybe you're not seeing God answering the pray- prayers that you want, and you're not seeing God working in your life, maybe you need to examine your own heart for the moment because maybe what's going on is an issue of pride versus humility. It's an issue of who's more important, you or someone else. Now let me just stop for a moment because this is what our culture would say. Our culture would say, well, well, man, if you ain't looking out for yourself, nobody else will. Isn't Isn't that what we're told? Every man for himself, dog-eat-dog world, and it will. Yeah, now that's what the world says. But Jesus, what is it? His ways are not our ways. His thinking is not our thinking. And he calls us to a life of sacrifice because he lived that life. Aren't you glad Jesus did not live the way we live? 
Because if it was all about him, I could hear him in the garden right now. You know, Father, if this cup could pass, I want it to pass, and I'm not taking it. Is that what he prayed? No, he said, this cup could pass, but nevertheless, thy will, Lord, not my will. You understand what I'm saying? And listen, if it wasn't for that, would we be here today? No, there would be something else sitting here today. Literally. There wouldn't be any churches. The sacrifice was because of his selflessness. Let's go on then. So, God's response, his attitude. So then Peter gives us a call, he calls us to, he gives us a call here. Believers are to humbly submit themselves to God who is sovereign. So again, you've got to get off the throne. You know what I mean by that? You've got to give up. You've got to surrender your life. Because so many of us are, are so in charge of ourselves. We, we've got it all planned out. And we know what we're going to do. But you've got to give it up and let God take over. And He calls us to that. He calls us to humbly... Again, humbly is to remove the pride and go to him and say, Jesus, it's all because of you, not because of me. Not the end of myself that's worthy of your praise or glory. I submit to you, Lord. I surrender myself to you. Here, listen. And here's the thing. So he talks about an attitude here. He talks about that commitment we need to make. If you're going to have that commitment, you've got to have this attitude. Believers are to place their lives in the hands of God who cares for them. Let me go back to Tom here for a moment. Let's say Tom burns me over one too many times. How many of you have been burned by people? How many of you have been burned more than once by people? All right. How apt are you to commit yourself to that person to take care of you? How many of you would do that? I don't see any hands up. In fact, you're probably thinking, they're the last person that I would commit myself to, right? Why do we treat God that way then? So what do you mean? Has God burned you? No. But we sure treat Him that way. In fact, I can't think of a better person to commit my life to than God. Who knows everything, who's going, who, whose attribute is love, so he's going to express perfect love towards me. Everything he does is perfect love towards me. Even in the hardship, it's perfect love towards me. I can't think of a better person to commit my life to than God, right? See, this is what he's calling us to. He's calling us to, to get out of the self-mode. To get out of it, it's about me. And get to the mode of saying, Lord, you're in control. I know you're going to care for me. You're going to do what's best for me. I'm going to commit my life to you. No matter how difficult things get, and let's be honest, things will get difficult, right? Let me just qualify that again now. But things are going to get difficult because that's the way life is. Not because God's out to get you. So I'm going to commit myself because of Him. Because I know He's going to care for me and He's going to express His perfect love to me. And so I have a responsibility to place my life in His hands. That ain't easy. That's not easy. But I'm called to do that. So then verse 8 through 11, He's going to 
wrap it up with some responsibilities and a conclusion that we have as far as right now, standing firm. Look at what he says. Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you, all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's look here. First of all, the exhortation. Believers must be self-controlled and alert. He says sober there. We often think of sober in terms of of not being drunk. That is not the issue there. The word actually means self-controlled. So you are in control of yourself, in control of your desires, your lusts. So he's calling us to live a life that is self-controlled and alert. And really, we, do, we all need to really work on that area of self-control, don't you? We are in a, we're in a society where whatever you want, you can have. You know I'm saying? It's all, it's all readily available. Right there. I mean, everything is available. Period. And if you don't control yourself, it will consume you and eat you alive. Do you understand that? It will consume you and eat you alive. And so he's calling us, and my responsibility to stand firm, he's telling me I need to be self-controlled and I need to be alert. You, you know what? You can't be deceived anymore. You've got to be alert. Life is hard. Life will trip you up. And you need to be alert. Here's the reason why. Our enemy, the devil, is searching for opportunities to destroy believers. Let me tell you one thing. There's a characteristic about Satan you need to understand. He doesn't grow tired. He waits for the opportune moment. He and his minions wait for the opportune moment to trip you up and to cause failure in your life and to defeat you and to destroy you, destroy your homes. He's waiting for the right moment. If he's got to wait a few years, he'll wait a few years till the moment of weakness comes. And listen, let me explain something to you. The moment of weakness comes is when pride enters into it. Remember what, what Paul said in chapter 10? Lest he, let him who thinks he stand take heed, lest he what? Fall. See, pride, a, a position of self-confidence, can enter into your life and what? Destroy you. Destroy you. And you can sit here and say, well, you know what? Those things will never happen to me. Don't you ever say that. Don't you ever, ever say that. I don't care what kind of upbringing you have. Given the right circumstances, the right moment, enough pride has entered into it, and you think you're okay, you will be surprised what you will do. I know people that were raised good. And were good churchmen. Who in their later years, 
I'm talking their 50s and their 60s, did things that would surprise you and you would have been shocked at what they did. Can I tell you the number one reason they did it? It's because they thought they were okay. Because you have an enemy that will wait to destroy your life and your testimony. So let's go back to what he says. So I need to be self-controlled. I need to be what? Alert. Don't think it won't happen to you. Don't think it won't happen to you. Because when you think it will ha won't happen to you, something's taken over and you're forgetting something. Pride is taking over and what you're forgetting is, is you inhabit a body of flesh that is what? Sinful. Sinful. So, our enemy, he's searching for opportunities to destroy us. Reality. Here's the exhortation. So here's what we've got to do. Believers are to resist the enemy as they remain steadfast in their faith. Here's how you resist the enemy. You stay faithful. You don't go on the offense against him. Some people will tell you that. You resist him by not allowing him to get to you because you're remaining steadfast in your faith and what you believe and what you hold to. So then he gives a benediction here. Peter asks God to bless and mature those who are suffering for their faith. How many of you are aware that there are believers in Christ who are dying right now for your faith, for their faith? You know, there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States. More Christians in China than there are those in the United States. I think they're predicting upward to 10% of China now. That's a lot of Christians. The reality is that they suffer for their faith. But we just go on with our lives because we're focused on who? Ourselves. Peter is calling us here to not just focus on ourselves. Again, this is the theme throughout this entire book. The theme is it's not about who. It's not about me. It's about others. And so you and I are called to what? Ask God to bless those who are suffering. Because you're going to suffer too. In fact, look at look what he says there. May the God of all grace, who calls us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect and establish and strengthen and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In fact, look at verse 9. This is where it talks about. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He's also talking about, I need to bless those who are suffering, and then as you suffer, you realize you're not alone in your suffering. You're not the only one going through it. It's not something strange. It's not something strange. So then here's the conclusion. A couple of things here. First of all, Peter personally closes his letter to his readers. He has somebody else by the name of Sylvanus write it for him. Let me just stop for a moment. You say, really, he didn't write this letter by himself? Let's remind you of something. Acts very clearly points out that Peter and John, when they were before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin looked at them and said, they realized that these were what? Uneducated what? Fishermen. Peter's not a scholar. He's an average Joe. 
And so as he's writing this letter, he has somebody else write it for him. Somebody else write it for him. In fact, there is a gospel that is attributed to Peter, but it was written by somebody else, and that person's name was Mark. They believe that the major influence behind the gospel of Mark is the Apostle Peter. Church history tells us that. So here he is. He's sending a personal greeting to the folks, to his readers, or to you and I, through the ages. And then he goes on and he brings a greeting. Peter brings greetings from those who are with him in Rome. Now you might be saying, well, wait a minute now. It says here, Babylon. He's talking about Rome. Here's a good point. Let me make this point to you. The Bible gives us pictures of what is to come. Prophetic. prophetic. And there is a one world government that is to come. And for years we thought it was going to be in Rome again. The next Roman Empire. Well, it's going to be an empire like Rome. But here's what I want you to understand. The Bible doesn't necessarily say it's going to be in Rome. It refers to it like the Rome, or here the Roman Empire is referred to as what? Babylon. Where's Babylon? A whole, a whole long distance away from where Rome is. But what's the point? It's a type of, of government. It's an autocratic, dictatorial, oppressive government to the children of God. Period. And so we, we, we are looking at, in the future, there will be a government that is going to be oppressive to who? To Christians. So here's Peter. He's writing concerning the church, and they're undergoing severe persecution. In fact, Peter would later be martyred in Rome. And so he uses what many scholars says is just a word that typifies where he's at, Babylon, meaning Rome. Does everybody understand why it says that? All right. So let's close our time in prayer.